Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cloud and Clear, uh, Sada's uh, podcast for companies entering uh, Google Cloud. I'm your guest host today. My name is Patrick Monahan. I'm the Chief Legal Officer and Corporate Secretary here at Sada, subbing in for Tony, our illustrious uh, CEO and, and general host. Today's guest, I'm very honored to invite and, and have us join on a very timely topic. Sebastian is the Chief Information Security Officer at Nutanix, and he's also, we're proud to say, uh, an independent director on SADA's board. Uh, Sebastian joined SADA's board uh, about three months ago and serves on our Audit and Risk Committee. Uh, he is an accomplished expert and thought leader in the realm of information security, security management, enterprise risk management. And so we're going to talk a lot about those topics, particularly for companies who are navigating their journey onto the cloud or maybe already are uh, on a public cloud provider like Google Cloud. So, uh, Sebastian, welcome to Cloud and Clear. It's great to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Excellent. Well, we're excited to have you here. So uh, what I'd like to start with, Sebastian, is just asking you to tell our audience a little bit about your background, um, your career evolution to date, maybe some advice you might have for folks looking into careers in IT, and just tell us about how, how you got to your, your career position uh, right now and, and, and everything that's gotten you to this point. You know, I'll start with um, kind of how I got into cybersecurity. It was uh, kind of a funny story. At, at a young age, I was really interested in um, you know, reading about hackers and like hackers magazines. We used to have this magazine called 2600 Magazine back in the day. Um, I was an avid reader and, and just the whole topic of, you know, kind of fooling machines and, and also the users of, of those machines into doing things that they're, they're not supposed to do. Right. And, um, and so I found that kind of intriguing and I was in a high school uh, computer class and the computer teacher challenged everyone in the class. He said, if anyone can break into the uh, computer in this classroom, I'll give you an A in the class. Um, and, and he said, by the way, it's impossible because I've just installed this full disk encryption software and it has like, you know, a BIOS password and everything that there's just no way that, that you're going to be able to get in because the whole disk is encrypted. Um, and so I was like, okay, challenge accepted. And then I went home and I actually called the, the vendor. It was a Norton product. You know, Norton got absorbed into semantic at, over the years. But uh, at the time, it was a Norton product. I, I called their tech support and I said, well, what if I've installed your software and encrypted my computer and forgot the password? And they said to me, well, if that happens, you're out of luck because the whole thing is, is encrypted and you need the password to decrypt. The only thing you can do now is is wipe the, the drive you know go into the master boot record delete that and uh just kind of format f disk everything and 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 i thought to myself well if i can do that erase the master boot record i could probably like write a little bit of code and just place it there w without you know removing all that encrypted stuff that's there and so I, I wrote a bit of code that just kind of pops up and says you know norton disk encryption error please enter your password and I put that, I kind of snuck into the computer lab um, the, uh, the, the, the next day and I put my little program on there that just pops up and says, uh, you know, 
disk encryption error, enter your password. And then, so during class, I called the teacher over and I said, hey, what's this? It's asking for your password. And he's like, oh, okay, let me see. And he puts in his password. And my program, of course, then saved his password uh, for me to, to retrieve later. Um, and then with that password, I could, of course, unlock all of the computers in the classroom and uh, thus <laughs> forcing him to give me an A. Um, he wasn't too happy with it in the end. And he actually he like sent me to the principal's office and I got in big trouble and everything. But I said, hey, you challenged me and, and I, I, I did it. Um, but I, I got the A in the end. But, you know, that was kind of like, um, I would say, one of my first experiences with, uh, you know, just the, the idea of, um, of, of hacking into systems. And, and oftentimes that's about fooling the people rather than fooling the software. I hope not only am I glad to hear you got an A, but I think you taught your teacher and classmates a very valuable lesson about about phishing. And, and, and I mean, clearly he wasn't qualified to teach that class if he felt <laughs> right. that, that level of, of ruse. Um, that, that's a very cool story. From high school on, were you were you always a were you a programming guy? Did you study CS in like in college? Yeah. Like, what, yeah. What the next? Step? Yeah, good question. So the next step for me, um, you know, even in high school, I was, I was working in like a computer store. It was called Egghead Software back then. You know, we sell software and actual boxes to to people um, on CDs and diskettes. And, and I was also fixing computers in the store, kind of, you know, changing hard drives, upgrading hard drives, motherboards, et cetera. And, um, and, and I, I decided to take some, some certification training courses uh, and, you know, Microsoft certifications, Cisco certifications, just trying to get some, some credibility as hard as like, a, you know, 17 or 18 year old to be, you know, taken seriously for, you know, the jobs. Um, and, and without much experience. So I kind of, I did that. I learned a lot um, just about general networking and operating systems. Um, and then sort of landed a first job doing sort of tech support kind of work. Um, and then I taught Microsoft courses for a while and I did a few little consulting uh, gigs here and there, but ma mainly on the topics of uh, of you know windows networking and um and stuff like that but my, my first security gig landed when you know i was just looking looking at job listings and i saw this um security job that was really focused on you know microsoft server platforms and active directory which was something completely new at, at that point and um and and so I thought, you know, that's something I know very deeply and I'm really interested in security and this kind of combines the two. So l let me go after it, even though I've never had like a, a real security job. So in this sense, it was kind of like fake it till you make it. <laughs> I was like, you know, security. Yeah, that's what that's what I want to do. And um, because I knew the, the technology deeply, um, they, they gave me a shot and, and it was great experience and i ended up you know leading security for for microsoft platforms at uh, the company at the time was called peoplesoft which became you know oracle after an acquisition so even in those days how specialized was the security uh pipeline for somebody like was were, were many of the skills like getting microsoft certification versus cisco were they easily transferable or was there are a lot of barriers to, to transitioning. Um, 
No, it, it was very transferable. And, and you know, I, t I always tell people today who are interested in getting into security, security is, is an area where you really need to know how all the different components work and how they fit together. The security team needs to know the full stack because it's that's what gets exploited. It's, you know, the, the attackers are figuring out um, you know, how to make things work in a way that, that they shouldn't work. And that takes knowledge, like detailed knowledge of how the system works. Um, once you know how the whole thing works from the network layer through the application layer, then you can start to think about how to exploit it and how to protect it from, from being exploited. So that, you know, the folks on my team today are folks who, you know, were deeply in, in networking for a while before they entered security or deeply in operating systems and like IT um, management before getting into security. Were these first roles, were you still a student at the time or did, did you, were you working, this is after oh, you, you finished? Yeah, sort of yeah good question. So I finished high school and I kind of jumped right into, uh, into the workforce. And, you know, I, I was like, I'm already working. I love this. Uh, I just want to go out and do computer work. And then, you know, eventually, you know, people, uh, mentors and parents said, you know, you really should go to college. Um, and, and so I thought, okay, I better do that. I, and I went um, to university and at the same time I was teaching Microsoft courses at a local like Microsoft training center. And um, after you know, six months of that or so, I said, you know, I'm not really enjoying the, 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 the college part of it. I'd rather just work full time. And I just kind of dropped that. Um, and, and it took me eight years to get back to, uh, you know, finishing my, my university degree. I, I had a few jobs and, uh, you know, I was at uh, IBM uh, in, in their security and privacy consulting practice. And, and again, you know, I had mentors and stuff telling me, hey, you should really finish that and maybe even get a master's, you know, go for um, if you want to be a leader, go for an MBA or something. So I said, yeah, I better I better do that. So at age, uh, you know, what was it? Twenty six. I went back to university, finished that and then um, eventually went went for that MBA as well. So I kind of had a meandering path in and out of formal education. Uh, in parallel to my career in cybersecurity. How has the overlay, I'll, I'll get into more detail with this later, but how has the overlay of those two, how has one helped the other? Because I think as you've progressed to more senior, like C-level roles, then having folks in the C-suite comfortable with you, you have to have sort of check some of those yeah. boxes, yeah. right? But I think also having buy-in in a in building a security organization, like you said, if without a without a really detailed understanding of the full stack yeah. of the software and what what's going on on prem mm -hmm. and now with cloud and hybrid environments and all that, you, you can't be taken seriously and you can't devise policy for an organization as big as like a Nutanix unless you understand it from from top right. to bottom. I would imagine, right? Yeah, and and that's true. And I'd say I took an untraditional approach to my technical education. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of people in, in IT and security do this too. And it's more like self-taught through tinkering. And, you know, I started that probably when I was 14 years old and just, you know, tinkered and broke stuff and figured out how to fix it. And, and, and so by the time I was ready for formal education, I thought to myself, well, I could take a whole bunch of computer classes and I'll know a lot of it. I'll probably learn some things, but I'm always thinking about like, what are my gaps and, and how to 
round myself out rather than just going deep in one area. So I thought since I, I have pretty good um, understanding of, of computers and networks and you know a handful of certifications and all this, when I go to school, uh, why don't I focus on business, right? And so I, I did my undergrad in economics. I, I did an MBA, and then there's really about you know filling out the the areas that I haven't self-taught, you know. So you know rather than taking uh, you know yet another computer course, um, just go ahead and, and round myself out. And I've done that in education and also tried to do that in my career, like change roles and, and see the industry from different sides. Um, so, you know, I haven't been just an IT or cybersecurity practitioner throughout my whole career. I've also spent time as a consultant to, to CIOs and CISOs and also, um, you know, running a consulting practice. So dealing with the PNL of, of that. Um, and then also on the product side of things and, you know, doing product marketing and launching security products um, to be sold to CISOs. So, you know, that's all in the name of kind of rounding myself out to see all angles of, of this industry. How do you stay current? I mean, there, there's so much to learn and it's constantly evolving, yeah. right? Security is an ever changing space. So how, how do you keep up with your, your day job as, as a CISO at Nutanix, yeah. but also devote yourself to evolving as a practitioner if it doesn't naturally flow from, from your day-to-day -day um, job? You know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, these days there's, I get a lot of my, my news from like the people I follow on social media who kind of, you know, they're talking about the latest vulnerabilities and exploits. And then there's the official sort of, uh, you know, vulnerability mailing lists and things that I subscribe to cybersecurity lists. Um, and of course, you know, the great people who I'm lucky enough to have on my team who are always surfacing like really relevant news articles and white papers and, and stuff like that. But, but yeah, it, it is an industry where you really have to keep up with, with what's happening, um, especially those super time sensitive things like a new vulnerability is announced in a, a critical tool that you use. You have to be on that within hours. Um, you know, we actually, actually a funny story on that, that I think kind of illustrates what we do in, in cybersecurity and the importance of, of that timeliness of patching. Just over a year ago, a vulnerability was announced in, in one of our critical tools um, and that, that we use to, to manage endpoints. And, um, and basically all the news around it said, you know, if, if, if you don't patch this thing right away, hackers across the internet, they're just gonna scan for, for vulnerable servers and they're going to take them over. Um, and so, you know, I, we, we, as security folks, we raise alarm bells, but we're usually not the ones who need to apply the patch. It's, you know, some, someone in IT typically, or some server owner. And, uh, so, you know, we raise that issue and the response is like, okay, but we're in a change window or in a change, you know, outage window, we can't do any changes. Uh, we have to file a change request. Maybe we can get to it next week. And, and as a CISO, I have to say, no, th this is an absolute emergency. I'm sure this thing will be hacked if we don't patch it. So we ended up patching it about half a day after the, the patch was released from the vendor, maybe, you know, hours after it was released. And by the next day, there were companies all over the world being reported that they got hacked. Um, because they hadn't applied the patch yet. And it's just, you know, that, that's so time critical 
in our uh, industry, especially these days, because the hackers are are increasingly automated, and you know all they have to do is kick off a script to to scan across the internet looking for vulnerable servers, and then they just take them over. That's incredible time pressure. I mean, I mean, you know, from where I sit, like I, I know that we have very tight timelines around security incident reporting and breach notification, but the idea that you have you know, half a business day or less to to patch your your software or or update your software across a large organization like Nutanix. I mean that that really requires a lot of uh, of coordination and and speed of execution, which I think for a large organization must be really yeah, it, it is challenging. And you know, sometimes we we have to balance the the risk and the reward. A lot of companies have you know, very revenue generating systems, you take it down for an hour, you, you lose, you know, half a million dollars or something. So there's a lot of juggling. But these days, you know, you design systems to be resilient, so that you can take servers offline without taking this, the whole service offline. And that's so critical, because that's what enables you to, uh, to do that kind of rapid patching without a major service disruption. Um, but but when we don't have that kind of resilience, Sometimes we have to make the really difficult decisions to just take something offline completely if, if we think it's that vulnerable. Um, and for some reason, you know, sometimes we hear about vulnerabilities before the patch is available, right? And so that, then you're, you're really in a situation where you have to make some critical decisions. And sometimes the right decision is to just take that service offline until you can uh, reduce the risk. Do you think the customers and the end users that are supported by a security organization appreciate the the trade-offs that you would have to make so when you're in a position where like a patch mm -hmm. isn't even available um a system uh or an application has to be disabled yeah. right until until it's until it's you've deemed it safe to to re to re to reintroduce is that a, is that a trade-off that people are are willing to um, make do you think or is it yeah that's that? a good question and, and i'd say it really varies and one of the most uh, you know critical jobs of a CISO, I, I think, is to explain and educate, and and start with the why. You know, here here's why we need to do this. Here's the risk if we don't do it. Um, and you know, over time, it, you can develop a reputation as a CISO, and and some CISOs have a reputation of. You know, just being very, uh, you know, black and white, like everything must be secure. I'm going to shut down everything that's not secure. And, 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 you know, people get a bit annoyed about that because they're not sure if they're always balancing the risk and the reward or, or really thinking about the business objectives and goals. Um, or you can, you can develop a reputation as a CISO who's always very balanced and explaining sort of the thought process and saying, here's why I think we have to do this. I thought about, the risks and, and the rewards here. And unfortunately, we have to make this, this tough decision. And, and it's appreciated when, when you explain, um, you know, your thinking. So that, what you just said, Sebastian, resonates a lot with me as, as a lawyer, because I, I also struggle with that. And I think a lot of lawyers do, because you don't want to be a doctor yeah. no type, right? That's always in the way of the business. Um, so I'm also struggling always to achieve that balance where I can be seen as a as an important business partner so that when I do have to raise a yellow flag or even a red flag, people know that my heart is in the right place and that I'm trying to do something for the betterment yeah. of the business 
our customers, other stakeholders in the organization. So being being having that credibility and protecting that credibility is super important, yeah. not only for me, but I imagine for somebody in, in your exactly. seat as well. But I want to talk a little bit about, about yeah. patching because, you know, I've read a little bit about, obviously, the, the SolarWinds uh, breach, the Microsoft attacks that, that took place, right, that have been in the news in the last uh, few months. And and some of them, I think, in the in the Microsoft case in particular, it was around um, a, a patch that was that was yeah. required for some of the some. Can you can you talk a little bit? I know some of the folks in our audience are security experts like you, but can you briefly explain some lessons learned about those those episodes? And I wanted to touch base with some of the things I've heard in terms of how organizations can learn from events sure. like this that have been sure. recently. Yeah, you know, I think that, um, yeah, it kind of takes us back to those lessons about patching. And, you know, there have been some vulnerabilities over the last year, um, you know, including, I think, some of the Microsoft ones where they, it's announced before the patch is available. So you have to make some tough decisions then. Um, or if it's announced uh, and, and the patch, they, they try to announce it and release the patch at the same time, ideally. Because you don't want to tell the whole world, you know, that there's a way to hack into this thing and then, you know, release the patch a week later. But it happens sometimes, depending on how the vulnerability is disclosed and how it's discovered. Um, and when it's in such a critical service, like, you know, there were some Microsoft Exchange server vulnerabilities or, you know, we've had some uh, actually recently some VPN uh, vulnerabilities from some VPN vendors where they said, you know, it's vulnerable and we don't have a patch yet. So, so that, that's a critical service though. So you can just turn off your VPN or turn off your, your, your email servers, right? So that's a tough one. And, and usually they'll offer a workaround or something. Um, in the VPN case, there's definitely a workaround. You go in and make some modifications and now it's no, no longer vulnerable. This is a constant uh, juggling that we do, but um, the, the important thing is to really get all your teams into a patching cadence rather than just being completely reactive um, and, and emergency driven. You should at least know that we, we apply all the patches every month anyway, and, and occasionally we have to do one on an emergency basis. But if you're running things that are, you know, three, six, nine months plus out of date, you're really operating in the danger zone. And I think a lot of organizations have learned that, but some of them are, are still, still have operational challenges in really implementing that kind of patching cadence. But let's talk a little bit about also ransomware. Like I, 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 I've read that, you know, with the colonial pipeline stuff and so on or whatever, that it's a best practice for security organizations to do regular ransomware Simulation. attack simulations. Is that, yeah, is that something that you... Do it in Nutanix or something that you would recommend? Yeah, you know that the simulations to, to are often focused on your, the incident response plan, which is absolutely critical, um, especially in a ransomware event. Why is it so much more critical in a ransomware event? Well, you're operating on a timeline typically where they say, you know, we've got your files um, and you have 48 hours to pay us. So you, your incident response plan, including how you deal with ransomware, needs to be documented and you need to practice it because if you're figuring out it out as you go um it's going to take too long 
And, and I've heard of companies that, you know, that they finally decided they wanted to pay the ransom, but it was too late because it took them three days or, you know, to get all the right people involved and check with outside legal counsel to see if it's legal to pay the ransom and, and all the steps that, that could have been done beforehand. Um, so, yeah, that, that kind of practice is key. And, and ransomware these days, I don't know if everyone realizes, but the, the, the extortion kind of falls into two different categories. Now, there, there's the, 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 we have your data and we have the key and now you can't get to it anymore, right? And, and if you have a backup, then you can save yourself. You, save, you can still get your data from the backup. Um, and so if that's the only demand, then you can save yourself with backups. But increasingly, we're seeing more of, of a confidentiality demand. They kind of extort you by saying we post, we're going to post it on this public website and, you know, we have your customer data or what have you, um, unless you pay us. And that one, you know, backup doesn't help you there, right? There are still things that you can protect yourself through, you know, file encryption and stuff like that. What special requirements would you impose like on a vendor software as far as vulnerability testing, um, you know, pen testing and stuff like what? What is a recommended approach beyond sort of what the, you know, what the vendor might be willing to? Is that is that a back and forth with a vendor to say we, we have some additional testing requirements we want to impose um, on you as a customer? Yeah, you know, as as a customer, th there's a number of layers, right? There's sort of you know everybody, most companies have a security questionnaire or something that they send to their vendors these days that asks them a lot of questions about how they manage their security. And they might also dive into product security and, and ask the vendor, you know, how do you ensure there is no malicious code in your product? Or, you know, how do you deal with product vulnerabilities? What's your SLA for um, producing a patch for a vulnerability in your product? Those are good things to, to ask, um, you know, for cloud services who are actually holding your data. You want to know that the SLA for if they get some sort of breach that impacts your data, do they need to tell you that in 48 hours, 48 days? You want all that stuff in the contract, ideally. So, so yeah, I think it kind of starts with that questionnaire, and and you know that's how you stipulate your um, the, the questionnaire translates into the requirements that you have. You know, some answers are are acceptable and some answers are not. And you have to kind of figure out your, your risk tolerance and enforce it through that uh, vendor risk management process. You, you mentioned cloud. So let's talk about, about cloud and particularly, you know, Google. I know, I know Nutanix is a, is a Google customer and, and SADA, of course, is, a, is, is Google's largest resale partner. A lot of people, I think, have misconceptions about cloud and security, right? That, that the journey to the cloud itself is is insecure and that and that by by placing applications on public cloud you're you're creating certain vulnerabilities how would you how how did you approach that at Nutanix specifically and how would you advise a similarly situated CISO about about making yeah, the journey yeah you know, i would say that you know whether you're working in your data center or in the cloud you can either do things correctly or incorrectly right you can you can build it in a super secure way. You can build it in a not so secure way. In the cloud, the the, the bottom layers of of the stack, um, you know, the, the the hardware, the the networking, um, physically, you're you're kind of you're outsourcing that to the cloud provider to take care of all of that, 
but you're still responsible for you know the whole application layer depending on what kind of cloud service you're you know i'm talking more infrastructure as a service like you had seen um, and so you're responsible for the in some cases the, the operating system if you're just kind of spinning up a vm and you want to install an operating system and applications on top of that and you're responsible for a lot of your your networking settings and you know where, where companies go wrong is if they they don't take full responsibility for for all of that you know the, the networking layer in the cloud uh the operating system security layer um so if you just you know ask you know some application developers go into the cloud and build your application there you're probably missing some security layers because those application developers were not used to handling network security controls because in the data center that's done by someone else right right and so i've seen a lot mm -hmm. of organizations yeah. where they just start building stuff in the cloud it's so easy it's so quick the application just works um but it's exposed to in a way that it shouldn't be at the network layer because of some faulty configurations because you didn't have anyone from the security team or the network security team involved in that project because you know any developer can just spin up something in the cloud so it's really about making sure that all your layers of security responsibility are taken care of and um you know i think increasingly organizations are realizing that unfortunately sometimes you learn the hard way and it's important to get the word out there um to to just start out doing it the, the right way as you start building in the cloud yeah, you touched on some great points there. I mean, the difference between being a cloud native uh, developer, right, and, and developing things that are on premises and then migrating um, the conversation yeah. between the public cloud provider or, you know, the company that's assisting with implementation like, like SADA does, right, and understanding the scope of each party's responsibilities because yeah. it's very easy to become complacent, rely heavily on a public cloud provider or a managed services provider and, neglecting some of your internal responsibilities, which, you know, you can never, which can never go away. They can't be outsourced. They can't be forgotten because the responsibility yeah. still lies with the customer to, to sort that. Tell me about pivoting to a remote workforce. Obviously, a lot of companies are doing that. It appears yeah. to be, you know, even post-COVID, something that's that's really here to stay. It's great for acquiring talent, right, and retaining talent to be able to let people work and, and collaborate and, and develop from anywhere, but it also creates, I imagine, a lot of headaches for a security-oriented organization. How are you managing that transition, and how would you advise others yeah. in a position to, to handle that? Yeah, it can create headaches, but, um, you know, for an organization that was already you know, very um, mobile-enabled and, and remote, it hasn't been a tremendous shift for us. Um, everybody, you know, had the ability to you know, either get on a VPN or get on a, a VDI um, to to do their virtual desktop to do their work. Um, but where I see the struggle, you know, in talking to a lot of companies and, and seeing uh, some unfortunate security incidents unfold, actually um, related to remote work, I think one of the keys is um, is really it's about multi-factor authentication. That's an absolute requirement for everyone. Uh, you know, and uh, I think some companies that or organizations that weren't already in a work from home mode, they had to kind of slap something together really quickly 
And, you know, like we've seen with water treatment plants, scary stuff, right? We had one hacked in Florida and then news came out recently that one was also hacked right here in California in the Bay Area. And, um, and, and it appears these were both through remote control software so people could work from home. But it was, you know, just kind of simple remote desktop software with no multi-factor authentication. And I think one of the stories said a former employee's account was still enabled and that was used. So th there's hygiene and, and there's, you know, just the fundamentals of for any external access into um, a company or into a critical application. Multi-factor authentication should be the bare minimum. Uh, you know, user ID and password, that's a thing of the past. You can't protect anything with a user ID and password. And and it's it's so amazing because even just a couple of years ago, right? I feel like MFA was not was not widely practiced. And that you're you're right. Some of the security incidents that we see in the market are around changes over just the last 24 to 36 months in terms of MFA becoming a minimum absolute standard versus yeah. a fairly new phenomenon. And then employees transitioning in and out of an organization, transitioning in and out of projects, making sure those doors are shut behind them is something that a lot of organizations, yeah. I think, are not as careful or thoughtful about as they probably need to be. It's, it's absolutely right. And, you know, I, I think if, if listeners get one thing out of this, out of today's uh, you know session related to security, it's make sure you have MFA for accessing um, you know things from outside. And um, even if you do have it, make sure you have it everywhere, uh, because you know so sometimes you just have to go out and ask the question: Is anyone here aware of anything that you access without MFA? And you'll be surprised at the answer. I guarantee, even for companies that that do have it. Because inevitably, there's some application that someone uses somewhere that may not be SSO integrated for whatever reason, and, and they'll raise their hand and say, oops, I do access this thing with just a user ID and password. And, and you have to jump on that because uh, you know, it, it happens and it, it will lead to breaches. Maybe my, my last question for today, and this has been fantastic, uh, Sebastian, we'd love to have you again, but you're very much self-taught and a lot of folks in your space are kind of self-taught and then you have the layers of of yeah. continuing education. So what would somebody who has an interest in IT wants to get into cybersecurity? What's what's the best path to pursue that? You know, I think a great path is, is to find some technology area that you're passionate about and, and really learn that uh, deeply. So you don't, you know, just jump necessarily just jump straight into security, but, you know, whether it's, it's coding and, and, you know, writing, code or, or whether it's, you know, being an IT practitioner or working at a help desk to learn how all the systems work and how they're, they're fixed, um, get that technical grounding in something. And then the, the leap to security becomes a lot easier. Um, but, you know, it's possible to, to start from scratch, too. There's great security training available these days through, you know, various online outlets. Even you can find some some good stuff on YouTube, even just for free around different, uh, you know, even Google Cloud certifications related to security. Um, so, yeah, get trained up. And, uh, you know, a lot of people start out in like a, a security operations kind of function and, and learn and, and gain skills that way. 
that's all great. And the level of information and, and education available to folks has never been greater. But yeah. it, I, what you said resonated with me in terms of being full stack. So I think if you can combine a, a broader sort of agnostic IT background and then put the security layer yeah. on top yeah. of it, it helps you. I would think it helps you develop empathy and understanding for other stakeholders in the organization. So when you're designing right. policy for a big enterprise like that, you need that you need that insight that can only come from sitting in their seat at some point earlier in your career, right? The fact that you yes, absolutely, and yeah, that, that's that's the best candidate is is that well-rounded person who's sat on the other side of the table and and had to implement or manage these systems that they're now responsible for securing. That's great. And I know I told you that was the last question, but I have one more. Um, okay. If there's one more takeaway other than MFA, and I'm sure there are many more from this conversation, yeah. but if you were speaking to a sort of a lay person, a person who doesn't regard security as sort of their primary vocation and sees that sort of as somebody else's job, right, the CISO or the EIT organization, how do you help every stakeholder in the organization understand the importance of security and, and, and what's the best way to give them at least a layman's understanding of, of what security responsibilities they have as a user in the organization. Yeah, you know, one of our key jobs uh, in security is, is really educating and letting everybody know that it's a shared responsibility and it's not something that us security folks can do for you, right? It takes everyone in the company doing the right things, you know, following the right policies in order to avoid a security breach. And that, so that takes continuous education. Um, it also takes, you know, we, we do things like phishing simulations because people are very vulnerable to phishing. And that's usually how, you know, an attacker initially gets in is uh, through some sort of an, an email vector. So, you know, you can do simulations that constantly reinforce that, uh, that message that you shouldn't be clicking on things that, that you're not expecting or that looks suspicious. Um, so yeah, there, there's that constant training reinforcement and there's, there's also the need for us as security practitioners and especially as CISOs to connect um, all the security initiatives back to the objectives of the business. You know, we're not just doing security for security's sake, but we're, we're actually in business to do something. And, and in order to do that thing, we rely on uh, our customers rely on us to practice good security and to uh, earn their trust by protecting their data and doing all the right things. So, you know, I, I often tie it back to the customer and what they need from us. That's super important. I love the, um, the mission enablement force multiplier message of security, right? It's not it's not this thing up on a shelf that smart folks like Sebastian do and you don't have to worry about. It's something that can make your endeavor in our company and our company's mission travel yeah. further and faster. So having Absolutely. that, that buy-in is super cool. Sebastian, this has been wonderful. Yeah. So excited to have you on our board. So Thank excited you. to see what you do next as a, as a CISO. And I'm sure everybody has found this topic super important and, and relevant. So we'd love to have you back on the program again sometime soon. Thanks a lot. It's been fun. Take, take care. Um, thank you all for joining. We'll see you next time on Cloud and Clear. Thank you for listening to Cloud and Clear. Check the show notes for links to this week's topics. And don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at Cloud and Clear and our website, sada.com. Be sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app.